You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. What's up, aviation nerds? Welcome to episode lucky number 11 of the Forever on the Fly podcast, your bi-weekly dose of aviation inspiration, education, and entertainment. Mi nombre es Diane. And my name is Jose. And we're here to get you guys hooked on aviation. Fire season is already upon us here in LA. What? I know. I started crying the other day. Did you? Yeah, I was like, um, so... Is that how you were trying to put the fires out with your tears? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I do two days of flying news and two days of flying for medical transport. So those are my like additional duties. But it turns out when you fly news here in LA and there's a fire, relatively big fires, Mm -hmm. you know, you're up at 7,000. 10,000 feet AGL in a helicopter. Right, right. Right? And you're over this fire, and, you know, you just go down and up. You cover the fire for as long as your shift is. Mm-hmm. So typically about six, seven hours of flying over Dang. a flyer, you know? Dude, that's a long, that's a long flight day. Yeah. And especially when you're sitting up there hovering at 7,000 yeah. feet for six, seven hours. That's yeah, crazy. So, yeah, you know, you start thinking about the fire, and I'm like, do we have any bigger tankers? <laughs> really? Were they? <laughs> what were they putting it out no, with? No, they they were putting it out yesterday. It was in Agura Hills, and don't get me wrong, it was like the fire was fast moving. LA County, uh, Ventura County, all the fire ships were on it. The helicopters were out there ASAP, and to believe it or not, they put it out in like three hours, I think. No, oh, that's not bad. Now they they brought in some BAE one forty six aircraft. Mm-hmm. Which are British, essentially, air tankers cool. that are stationed out here in Southern California. And, uh, yeah, they put it out pretty quick. Once those tankers came in, though, they, like, it was a game changer. It was just, yep, done. Game changer. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, Southern California, fire squads are on point. You know, yeah. <laughs> they kind of have to be. Jesus, yeah. it's April. Usually, fire season doesn't really get going until, what, like- July, June, I feel like June, July. June, July. And like last year, it was pretty much didn't end until February. Yeah, which, which is <laughs> like, sad, right? It's yeah, like, February. And, yeah. and then it just started again here at the end of April. I'm like, por que, Maria? Wow. Do you, does it really, um, like flying above the fires, even at 7,000 feet, is it really irritating with the smoke and how are your eyes and no, do, does your throat get weird. irritated at all? Like we, tend to, we tend to stay away from like the downwind of the like smoke and stuff like that. Yeah, it's smart. You know, but um, the biggest thing is just trying to get the correct shots and when the tankers are coming in and it gets pretty complex. Yeah, yeah. Line up there so with so many... much aircraft. I'm sure that like every station's out there covering it. You also have the fire ships coming in. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty um, dynamic. It dynamic sounds. situation. Yeah. You know, and then not only that, you're up with SoCal, and you got Southwest and everybody coming in on their approaches. Oh so, right, a lot of things to think about. Yeah, it's a very complex environment. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite draining. At the end of the day, you're like right, exhausted. I'm, I'm tapped. Yeah, and you're just hoping that it's out by the time you come into work the next day. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I get in my car and I go help the firefighters. <laughs> oh, my God. I, like, I literally was like, wait, what? <laughs> You're a volunteer firefighter? How did I not know this? I'm like, do you have any property but on I here, feel, sir? But I feel yeah. like sometimes you tell me things. I'm like, how did I not know that about you? You're, like, you're full of surprises, which is which is cool. I oh, like that. Yeah, yeah, you're a little bit of a mystery. That's awesome. <laughs> 
Uh, so, yeah, I know, um, especially at nighttime, when if you guys, uh, depending on where the fires are, if they're up in the mountains up here, you guys have to go pretty high, and you have to start thinking about bringing oxygen with you. Yeah. And especially during COVID, I remember last year, fire season, it was like a, a weird thing, because... Nobody wanted to put the same uh, yeah. oxygen tubes in. Yeah, the, in the nose. Yeah. Yeah, they um, we we used them, but the, I think the highest ever flown in a helicopter was fourteen five. And that was for fire. And that was for, for fire. covering the fire. Yeah, here in California, so about thirteen thousand AGL, you know, at night. Wow, I've yeah. been up to thirteen for a skydive, like to drop skydivers off in a A star. And the doors were off. It was February. I forgot my gloves. Mm-hmm. Worst decision of my life. I'm like, get out! Yeah. Get out! <laughs> I can't feel my fingers. Yeah. No, totally. Um, it, was, it feels so weird in a helicopter. It feels like you could feel every little thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's a little unnerving, especially yeah. with the doors off. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty crazy. But why don't you go ahead and introduce our next guest? This episode's pretty cool. Yeah, so this week we are highlighting a helicopter pilot from Germany who calls himself an everyday normal pilot, but his career has been far from ordinary, to say the least. He has flown a range of helicopter platforms from the Alouette, the Bell 204, the S55T, and now he's flying the AW169 in support of offshore windmill farms out of Emden, Germany. So his path has sure been a unique one, and we're excited for him to be here with us to share his story. I think that's pretty badass. Yeah, that's pretty cool. In this episode, Falco takes us through his experiences, the challenge of flying in the support of the windmill farms, crew resource environment, and the hazards of flying in icing conditions. And speaking of icing conditions, stick around until the end of the episode. We're going to have a short lesson on the hazards of flying in icing conditions, the different types of aircraft icing, and what to do if you unexpectedly encounter it. So chill out and enjoy the episode. Falco Buckle. Then he flipped them up and everything was completely in ice. Completely couldn't see anything outside at all. Hi, my name is Falco Bagul, and I'm forever on the fly. Perfect, see? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Nice to meet you, amigo. My name is Jose. Hey, guys. Hey, Jose. Nice to meet you, guys. Nice Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for being a listener and reaching out. Oh, my gosh. Anytime. Anytime I got time, too, so. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. I was reading over your resume, man. I was like, holy cow. (laughs) It's just... I mean, you, you can argue, I mean, normally in this case, of course, you would stick to a company for a long, long time. Um, but as we all know, you kind of move from job to job. Um, also, you know, life is full of surprises. And of course, uh, throughout your career path, you kind of decide, I want to rather do this than that. And yeah, yeah of course, sure. things change. <laughs> When you sent me the email and the subject line said normal everyday pilot, I'm like, all right. And I open it up and I read through your story, the short version, apparently. Wow, this guy isn't a normal everyday pilot. But, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's kind of cool. That's the really neat thing about the industry that we're in is that if you're a pilot, you're really never living an ordinary life. <laughs> Everything you do is pretty extraordinary. And case in point, look at what you do on a day-to-day basis. What's your primary job? Okay, so right now um, I work for a company that's based out of Emden. That's, if you look at Germany on the map, it's like in the you know, um, top left corner. And what we do is we fly offshore technicians to the wind turbines. So they're about, I have to guess, maybe like 12 wind parts or something right now. 
and they have between uh, between 30 and close to 100 turbines each. And what we do, we bring those technicians to these um, wind turbines that need some uh, technical attention, so to speak. They have some, some uh, arrows. Um, but it's also like regular uh, maintenance that needs to be performed. Well, that's super unique. I've never met an offshore windmill farm pilot before. Lots of oil and gas pilots, but never a windmill farm. Are there any unique challenges that go along with what you do? Can you walk us through a day in the life of kind of a thing? Um, so the night before we get an email or we look online, I was scheduled to see who's flying with whom the next day. And then a basic day is like a takeoff at eight. So you arrive about an hour early. And then you do flight planning for about yeah, 15 to 20 minutes. And uh, basically dispatch has all the flight route planned for you. And you just have to calculate um, the performance of the aircraft. So with the hoist operation, we have to operate the machine, which in my case is now Augusta 169. So we have to calculate our safe signal performance. And there is a 30-second limit and a two-and-a-half-minute OEI limit. And uh, due to customer requirements, it's either... Um, one of them, but it's mainly two and a half minutes. And then also we have the wind, but we can only use, depending on the client, up to 75% wind or 100% of the wind. Of course, the wind is 100% offshore, <laughs> but they just want, like, a safety <laughs> they want, they want a safety margin in case you arrive and the wind is not as strong as planned, basically. Right. But if you imagine a wind park full of turbines, um, of course, the turbines create like um, turbulence, but also slow down the wind. So let's say the wind park is say, massive from, um, let's say it's from east-west spread out. And let's say the wind is from the west, but you're hoisting on the east side. So all the, the wind has to go through all the turbines before that. And of course, it can slow down a little bit. And of course, not as strong as advertised, I say. Right. Um, but yeah, that's why we have to do the calculation. Yeah, And then we basically, it's a team of, um, depending on what size, it's between two and four technicians that we fly offshore. So it's a pilot, co-pilot, horse operator who controls the winch in the back, and plus in the three or two to four technicians that will fly offshore. And um, as you can imagine, um, they bring a lot of cargo with them. It's like mm -hmm. cooling fluids, tools, specialized tools. So best case scenario, if the wind is strong and everything fits in the aircraft, we go straight to the turbine and hoist the entire team down. And that lasts about you know, six, seven minutes, maybe depending on how many horse bags we have. If it's like uh, hardly any wind, like summertime, high pressure system, then we may have to go to the substation. So every wind park has its own converter station in the middle where all the turbines feed the energy through. And then it gets converted, I think, from DC to AC, but might be also the other way around. I'm not sure right now. And then it gets fed basically onshore, where then it gets fed into the entire electric grid system. Wow. So if, if we are that heavy or it's a performance, of course, we have our minimum fuel. Um, so, but there might be times we have to fly to the substation, leave some guys behind, leave some cargo behind, fly then to the turbine, hoist the guys down we have on board in the cargo, then return back to the substation, collect the other guys, bring them to the turbine, and then go back. But right. then also, so this is like the first turbine, but then there are also circular flight. We have like two, three turbines um, planned today. Then you come back from your on-trade, so let's say in my case, Empton. I depart in Empton a couple hours later, get all the guys again, worst case, back in the substation, back to the next turbine, drop the first load off, back to the substation, get all the other guys remaining cargo, back to the next destination, and then back to Emden wow. or Borkum or oh, whatever wow. destination. Are so you, it, it can be, yeah, can be um, are, dynamic at times. Are you operating at max gross weight most of the time? 
because of that? Yeah, so um, yeah, this depends on which aircraft types have flown uh, some. So the one I'm flying right now, it's uh, the Augusta 169 is certified up to 4,800 kilos um, to hoist at that weight. You know, when you first started out flying, did you <laughs> have any idea that someday you would be flying technicians out to offshore wind turbine farms? <laughs> Uh, no, not. I mean, in, in my case, so my father used to be a full-time firefighter, and um, as a firefighter in Hamburg or in Germany in general, you're also paramedic. And there used to be this uh, um, Air Force search and rescue helicopter, actually Bell uh, 205 or Huey, that used to be based in downtown Hamburg, as a big city with about two million people, and it served. Its its main job was to collect like down military pilots or any anybody crashing this airplane. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was used for the military guys to um, yeah, learn more about like um, like level A or level one trauma patients. So they flew within Hamburg City, like a heart attack case, car accident, um, any any trauma you can think of. So they did this and they took firefighters like my father along as a paramedic. And this is how I was introduced into like helicopters. And um, that's, I was totally, of course, blown away by the Huey sound and the downwash and the smell of jet mm-hmm. fuel. And of course, it was cool when it flies around. So Huey really, is a whole vibe. <laughs> yeah, totally. Even in Germany, you know, it's not like the American Huey country, but uh, the military used it also. Actually, it just retired now. So it was flying until just recently, active active force uh, in German military. But yeah, but in my case, actually, I grew up next to the airport in Hamburg. So I was living on short final. So the airliners came over all the time, so I was highly impressed with that also. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should become an airline pilot. Yeah. But then, um, but then um, yeah, it ended up being helicopter, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> Not too bad. I know it was like a, the 205 landed at our company um, the other day. We don't have one at our company. And we were yeah. all in the pilot lounge, you know, watching a little TV. And you had, it has a very distinct sound, you know, the flap, like the yeah, wop, exactly, wop, yeah. wop, wop, wop. <laughs> and yep, I, yep, all of yep. us kind of got up and we're like, Who's who's flying that? You know, and it was a bunch of kids in a candy shop. We're looking. <laughs> it landed. I'm like, oh my god, I want to see it. Can yeah. I fly it? Is it cool if I fly it? <laughs> I have controls. Thanks. <laughs> oh, look, a dolphin. And then you just I was like, what? Where? And then you just run into the pilot seat, <laughs> take off. <laughs> but yeah, no, I totally get it. That, I I will say though, the 169 man, that's a pretty impressive aircraft. You know? Yeah, actually it is. I mean, so in my progression, um, so I started flying the R22 and most guys make fun of me because I'm quite tall. I'm like um, yeah, almost like six feet or something. And of course, it's hard to sit like a tall guy in this aircraft. And uh, but when I became instructor on the left seat, you got the little bubble window over your head. And I took the foam out of my headset. So I got a bit more space. Actually, I fit quite nicely into an R22 Um <laughs> But yes, I've progressed through the 22 different types of turbines into the glass cockpit, like an EC145, 135, into the uh, the H145, into the 169. And yeah, the 169, I mean, we have some brand new co-pilots who come straight from R22 into the 169. Wow. And it's it's a gigantic jump. I mean, That's if elite. I would be in their shoes, I would be struggling. It's just, it's 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 very, it's not an easy aircraft, easy as in, of course, all flight the same. But I think it's easy, uh, it's difficult as far as the systems. Mm-hmm. And, and on the screens, I mean, Diane, you also fly the 109, I think, uh, Jose, you also. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, I have, I mean, I flew an old 109, the A2 model, something old, but it was a glass cockpit. Um, but that was on the 169, there's so much data presented to you. So it can be overwhelming. You have to kind of train your eyes where to look, where to find the data because everything is thrown at you. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you can argue it's good or bad. I mean, on, on the flip side, you have everything you need right there. No buttons to push. It's all there, what you want to see. On the Eurocopter or Airbus side, it's more like they show you something is wrong. If everything works, the this, this screen is pretty much empty. That only shows you what you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you can set it off. It shows more. But I mean, me personally, of course, I'm heavily Eurocopter uh, damaged or influenced. But, mm-hmm. Same. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, one, the one, 169, I mean, it's I like it. It's very powerful. There's another upgrade coming up shortly. It can even lift even more in, in OEI conditions and also more payload. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really like it. It's complex. It's not as easy to understand. You have this... It's called EDCU. It's like imagine two iPads in the center console, and you control like lights, fuel valves, flight plan. It's, it's like a Garmin-ish, but uh, hands down, it's not as intuitive as, yeah. as Airbus. But again, no offense to anyone. I mean, I like it. It's just a- <laughs> it's okay. Sorry, Leonardo. Airbus wins again. <laughs> like, what can we say? Well, you know, I mean, I've just found with any new aircraft that I hop into, there's just a learning curve. And, you know, the, you know, you, you get into an aircraft that presents you with more information than you're used to. At first, it's going to be so overwhelming and you're not going to know where your eyes are supposed to go. But, you know, I mean, as you know, once you get some time in it, it just becomes not like a second nature to for, for your eyes to go where they're supposed to go. It's just like you experience when you first do instrument training, everything looks like, you know, even just the panel of an R22 and you first hop in there is like, yeah. Whoa, you know, that's a lot of information that I'm having to collect to my brain, but our brains are so adaptable, you know, yeah, as, totally. as humans, we, we learn fast, uh, faster yeah, than we give ourselves be- credit for. It. <laughs> I'm just saying like, yeah, you were, even- Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Paul. No, good. I was going to say, even when I switched back and forth between the 135 and the H145, it took me a minute to kind of like settle in again. Of course, apply the same. But like I said, Ian, you, you, you get used to one machine, unless you've been off for like a month or like five weeks off or something. And then you come back. In my case, you have to sit down again. Okay, this is how I need a couple hours to get totally back into it. Like with the 169, I have about 400 hours now. And I've stuck, I mean, about like, with like 300 hours, I started to feel okay in it. That's because, uh, I mean, yeah, it is, it's, it's, yeah, it's not as easy in my opinion, but yeah. Yeah. Now I feel okay in it. I was thinking like um, going back to your co-pilots, how you were saying about the 22 going to the 169. I pretty much off in your, like their shoes. I, I remember going from the 22 to the EC-130, and I thought that was complex, right. you know? Yeah, I, first, is, like, yeah. I, was like, totally. I was like, oh, man. Well, it is. I thought it was yeah. complex, but I can imagine just having like a multi-engine aircraft, you know, having all, all those redundancies and understanding all the different systems. It could get a little overwhelming, you know, and then Absolutely. not only that, you're having to fly it as well. You know, you, I bet you feel a little bit behind the curve. When you're exactly, I mean, yeah, exactly. Flying the machine is one thing, but of course, the, once you're immersed in the operation, you bring a team out or something. Of course, it's radio communication and it's planning what to do now, and of course, it's a checklist to do. So, in our case, it's all a multi pilot operation, like I mentioned earlier. So, we have uh, one pilot flying and you have one crew member non pilot flying, and you, we switch around. So, let's say on takeoff, let's say I would do the takeoff, and then as we finish hoisting offshore and we come back. 
Then I would give the control to the um, co-pilot and he gets to do all the flying back. And then whenever we take off again, we always switch back and forth. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. That's like a, it's almost like flying in the airlines or something. The, the crew, actually, yeah, the crew actually, dynamic. It is, it is effective, yeah. So in, in Europe, I mean, of course, I spent some time in the States and it's a little bit different here as far as, let's say, in a Part 135 operation, you can't correct me, but I think we, we did a check right every year, right? Mm-hmm. Part 135, yeah. So uh, in our case here, so what we do with a commercial operation, it's, it's like one Part 135, but we do it every six months. So in our case, we do every six months a check right in a simulator. In our case, we fly to Italy to assess the calendar and do it at the factory um, with the simulators all level D. Cool. But uh, we have our own instructors. And then the next six months, we either go there again or we just do it in the aircraft. So, we, But in our case, it's, it's twice, twice the amount of training. So speaking of a big leap, I mean, you, you had a pretty big jump too. So you, you came over to the States. You got all of your certificates here at Hillsborough in Oregon. Yeah. Which we knew another German guy named Falk also. Yeah, Falk Nietzsche. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Falk, yeah. Falk Nietzsche. Falk Nietzsche, okay. who, uh, went to, up. Okay. who went to Hillsborough as well, German oh, guy that we funny. flew with at one point. Uh, but you went, you went from flying an R-22 to getting a job in West Virginia flying the Bell 204 and the S-55 right off the bat, yeah, less I, than yeah, 200 yeah, hours. Good point. Yeah, so I finished my training at Hillsborough. And as you can um, imagine, there are a lot of uh, pilots or uh, CFIs, double eyes being put out every month. And uh, back in 2006, it uh, was done in 2007. But um, there were a lot of guys, of course, applying for CFI jobs. A lot of guys left. You know, all the flight schools all over the states. And I think Silver State was still around, I believe. But anyway, so it was hard to compete against other people. So at his variation, they just started hiring when I was finished. So I was not able to find a job. And then I was looking around, like, of course, like everybody else, you know, send a resume everywhere. And uh, at that time, you know, you also talk about net, networking, which is very important. At that time, I was just, you know, networking within a flight school because I didn't know anyone else. I didn't know mm-hmm. of any like helicopter conventions or anything. I was just focusing on getting the license. So I was looking online. I found this company in West Virginia and they advertised the job for like co-pilot in a Schweizer. So I sent an email, said, hey, I'm interested. And I said, okay, come by. So I drove by. Long story short, there was no more Schweizer parked outside. There was the S55T, the Alouette 2s, and then the Huey. And I thought it's the wrong company. And I was the right one. Okay, so then I just uh, chit-chatted with the chief pilot. And by the same time I was interviewing, there was another guy coming from PHI with 4,000 hours. And I was like, Jesus, how am I going to get this job here anyway? I have no idea about anything. That's off out of flight school and I got my double eye. But um, plus I'm a foreigner. You know, we got limited time here in the States. Uh, but the long story short, I was somehow, I don't, I don't know why, but uh, they gave me the job. And um, the company itself, like I said, they did. Um, we used the Alouette for low-level gas pipeline uh, control. There's this little container in the rear. It's called the sniffer box. And uh, you get from the gas companies um, like a route you have to fly along this gas pipeline. And you fly low-level over the trees up and down the West Virginia hillsides, basically, and sniff the air. And should the system detect uh, any gas increase <laughs> wow. in the air, it would, it would, it would lock that, that location. And then we just continued on and when we're done flying then we would give this file uh, to the gas company so they can send a ground team out and, and find the gas leak and, and shut it, basically. Um, yeah, so the Sikorsky 55T was used to do, like, you know, like, uh, sightseeing rides, like, local festivals, 
um, orders fly my owners rich friends around we did that also um, yeah and the HUEUSU is it's a restricted category it's this UH1B and of course here comes little dumb Falco from Germany to this company has no idea about anything and this machine was in in the rock and the movie and like several big Hollywood movies uh, of course I didn't know you know but, mm-hmm. um, yeah so this machine was used for firefighting and so I got some training in that and also for the Alouette. But then, as you may remember, in 2007, August, September, the FAA announced that um, they made a mistake back in 1970s, maybe even more 60s, um, and said, well, the Alouette is it's a military production uh, aircraft, therefore it's restricted category. But somehow we signed it off as standard certificate uh, so long story short, they uh, grounded that aircraft, uh, which kind of uh, took away the job mm-hmm. uh, that I had. That's what I was trained for. So the company in the end kind of shut down. And um, it, it, it's, it's still around for a little bit, uh, but that's the huge part of it. But the rest is all uh, shut down. So there, there, there was Falco just, you know, living the dream in America, flying turbines, you know, they cost <laughs> the Alouette, Huey, and then, of course, uh, lose the job and then uh, then I went the normal way I should say maybe the right way and then I started in, moving to Minnesota where then uh, yeah starting on the R22 R44 and then uh, later on the uh, the jet ranger when people would ask you what you do and you told them that you're a helicopter pilot did you tell them you were a gas sniffer <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, back, actually back then to be honest back then I didn't have I mean I was just so we had this trailer uh, parked at the airport where I lived in so I had not but there wasn't any like social interaction with locals and I actually was stuck in a trailer there you know <laughs> so nobody asked me some question. pretty sophisticated <laughs> equipment <laughs> yeah, yeah so man you, the American dream right? you, you got to fly some really interesting vintage rare machines that, yeah, that's totally. pretty cool i i saw recently the s55 in compton i didn't even realize here at the airport they have an aviation museum they had one sitting out on the ramp and i wanted to climb inside of it so bad but they wouldn't yeah. let, they wouldn't let me but it's really a really interesting interesting aircraft did you have the upgraded gas turbine engines in that one or yeah, was it the old yeah, ra- radial kind yeah. Uh, yeah, we had the turbine version, and then we actually had two of them. But I think um, one of them we sold to a thing was Alaska. And funny story on the side, so the S55T, obviously there wasn't much use for it anymore. And then I have to put it correctly, an adult production, like an adult movie production company stopped by and purchased that aircraft for in-flight scenes. Oh, mm. got it. Yeah, I could see how that could be. Useful man. So they 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 produce produce those. I did a little bit of research after I saw it, and after I saw that you had flown it as well. That they you know they were built in the 1950s, and yeah. then kind of got slowly taken over by the 204 and 205s during the Vietnam right. era. Right. Yeah. Really, really interesting history behind the S 55s. If people want to go and and check out all of that, but yeah, totally, totally super rare, super rare opportunity that you had, especially being a pilot with less than 200 hours jumping into uh, totally, a turbine aircraft. Totally so you're right. You're uh, not a normal everyday pilot because not every normal day pilot. Well, I got, get I got that, lucky. <laughs> yeah. get that kind of an opportunity unless you're flying in the military. In that case, you could be of jumping course. into a Black Hawk doing hoist missions with less than 200 hours. Definitely Absolutely. Not, yeah. no well, I got really lucky, really lucky. Definitely on the civilian side. That's a very, um, very lucky transition. I would say. 
So when <laughs> when you, how was it being German and a foreigner living in West Virginia? I what like what did you think? Trailer. <laughs> oh yeah, you did say that. <laughs> I mean, I it's mean, a pretty I mean, countryside. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, of course, I didn't. I mean, I knew about West Virginia as a German, but I didn't know where it was. And if you like, like, it was like a beach anywhere, like mountains, or you know. But yeah, it's very mountainous. I mean, it's it's really nice from above. I from love above. it, and I was actually there last fall, and uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely beautiful. We got a cabin up there. When I was a kid, we used to vacation there. Um, oh, every, cool. Yeah, we used to get a cabin up there. Yeah. And yeah, it was absolutely beautiful in the fall time, though, like all the trees changing. And yeah, it's beautiful. Being in California, we don't really get that. You know, the season, <laughs> the seasonal changes. And I was really yeah. missing that about being in the we South. We just CG it out here for us. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, someday we're all going to have windows that just sort of like, change with the seasons to make it look yeah. like it. <laughs> like a TV screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can see that. I'm sure they still have, I'm sure they have that already, but so sure. you, you transitioned to, for your license from your FAA license to the EASA license. And yeah, yeah, ASA, yeah. I, ASA? <laughs> and um, I, I, I looked into that a couple of times um, just out of curiosity was it really expensive? I mean, I, I saw it, it was kind of like you had to pretty much go through all of your training again and go through all the check rides written, again. Right? A lot of written tests. A lot of written tests. What was that process exactly. like? Exactly. So where do I start? So basically, to make a long story short, um, you EASA or EASA, EASA, they don't, of course, it's an IKEO member country. All the countries are in Europe, IKEO, but for some reason, they decided at some point, nope, don't accept any American license anymore. We want you to do take all the tests and stuff in zero, basically. They will accredit you your flight time that you, um, yeah, the hours you collected here in the States. Yeah, yeah acquired. Yeah. Um, but as far as the theory goes, you have to start from zero. Um, so my case, so by the time I started the process, I was flying EMS in Minnesota. And I used the time, it's a 7-7 roster we did. Uh, EMS, so I used to time it off and also on time, obviously, um, to study for the exams. So you have to take, I think it was 14 written exams, and it's about it's weather. You have to know weather here, Falco House, the weather in July around uh, Mexico. How about in fall in uh, India? So you have to know all this like global wind directions um, and also navigation. You have to learn how to navigate around the north or south pole. Um, well, almost everywhere is north or south. Just, for me, it was quite difficult <laughs> wow. to uh, to comprehend all that. But yeah, it's, so it's in all the tests you take, um, the questions are basically, it's a non-open book test. Um, and also what's tricky is, um, at least when I took my exams in Germany, you have one question, three answers. And one of them is the right one, but it's also a little bit incorrect. So it's mm -hmm. they make it even more difficult to find the right answer. But yeah, you have to basically do like 200 hours uh, on site with the local flight school. Besides all your uh, learning, uh, uh, what's called the uh, far distance, long, long distance learning course. And yeah, then you have to take all the 14 exams at the flight school first. And then again, all of them at the authorities again oh. and then i had to then i had to um, okay and also in europe there is a type rating for every single aircraft 
And of course, in the States, it's hybriding, I believe it was at 12,500 pounds or more. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I had to take, and so of course, I picked the cheapest aircraft, though in this case it was an R44. Um, so I had to fly 10 hours in that one to get my commercial license. Um, and then, of course, there's an IFR in Europe for single engine, and then there's an IFR for multi-engine. So since I flew the EC145, I had a lot of IFR hours in the States, but now I had to take, kind of strange, I had to take a simulator skill test in a 145 in Germany, but then I finished the IFR training, because it was cheaper, in an Augusta 109, and I had to fly three hours in a, in a 109 and then five hours in a very simple simulator, like a stationary, non-moving flight training device. Um, but yeah, um, speaking of money, I think I spent about 15,000, 20,000 euros. It's about, yeah, $25,000 mm -hmm. just for the conversion. Um, yeah, so, it's, so and it took me about, yeah, I would say close to a year just to do all these theory parts. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's, it's studying. It's, it's, it's like, if you imagine like, well, I can't see my arms anymore, but it's like my <laughs> both arms, you know, spread out. That's how many books I have to study. Yeah. And, uh, did it, you, it's possible, but it takes time. Did you have to pay all that extra SIM stuff out of pocket yeah. as well? Or did a company yeah, yeah. already hire you? Uh, no. So... I don't know. And there is no company that I know of that is sponsoring from zero. So the guys or companies that make pay you for your instrument. Um, but you have, this is something everybody pays on the one. So when you start from zero right now, from zero to commercial license with instrument, uh, multi-engine IFR and multi-crew training, you're looking at about close to 100,000, 110,000 euros, about $120,000 mm -hmm. roundabout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that still cheaper than just starting your initial training in Germany? Right. So uh, so back in the days in Germany, before I started flying actively, I wanted to uh, become a pilot. So I tried to join the German Air Force and I passed all the tests, but I'm quite tall. So there was no demand for pilots by the time I finished the last test, which I could have taught me beforehand. But, yeah. So I did all the tests for nothing, basically. <laughs> Come on, uh, guys. <laughs> Little heads up would have been nice. Like, yeah. I mean, Hashtag recruiter I mean, like, life. Like they, yeah, they were trying I mean, to trap you is what uh, they were trying I mean, to uh, do. They were like, yeah, yeah you could like take uh, a, oh, why don't you be a pilot? And then. You know what's cooler is a tank driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, what was the question again? Oh, would, sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, why oh, yeah. why, uh, why come to the U.S. to do your training if you were just planning oh, yeah, yeah, on going point, back good to point, the... Yeah. Good point, yeah. So uh, this is why I picked the States because um, had I done all the training in Europe or in Germany at least, that would have been more expensive than in the States. And also the helicopter market in Germany, it's very, very small. The handful of operators. And um, in this case, at least to my knowledge, it's super, super hard to find a job with 200 hours so this is why i looked around and that's when i found um, the american option mm -hmm. and yeah that's how i looked at um, there was hai was helicopter adventure back in florida which is now bristol mm -hmm. and but then i also looked at um, hillsborough aviation and, and it was in oregon i thought well of course it's nice to fly at the beach in florida no question about it i like to go there um, but i thought for the training i think it's it makes more sense to go to oregon mm -hmm. high density altitude mountainous terrain crappy weather so i thought maybe i should go there and uh, take as much as i can and of course the plan was to best case get hired by the flight school i trained at and then a flight instructor get my thousand hours or more and then go back to germany and uh, get hired but obviously i spent about eight years in the states and uh where i met my american wife who is also here upstairs <laughs> uh, yeah 
That's awesome. I think you made a good choice, you know, going to Oregon. Don't get me wrong, Florida yeah. would be nice, but it's a, we call those flatlanders. <laughs> People that, <laughs> <No>. you know, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's much better yeah. training in or in Oregon yeah. if that if that's what you're trying to so. get out of it. I mean, it, like the only I guess the only downside is maybe some days your your training will take longer because maybe it'll be IFR more days out of the year than you know, somewhere like Florida where you might be able to knock out your training really quickly. But ultimately I think it makes you a better pilot having to deal with the weather systems that are coming through. And, Mm -hmm. but now apparently you're well equipped to fly in the North and South pole because you know, all of the weather systems that are going (laughs) to be coming through there. (laughs) I will say, I will say the antennas out there in Florida are really high. (laughs) They're they're about a thousand feet AGL, you know? So if you're not paying attention, man, the, Hit you right in the face. They'll get you. Yep. Have you flown in Florida? Mm-hmm. When? Um, you didn't tell me this. Yeah, no, no. When I, did you fly in Florida? Ferried, ferried aircraft. Oh, okay. Out that way. Cool. But um, oh, going back to um, your written test for like navigation yeah. for your ATP. What did is it similar to the FAA one? Wouldn't you cover like ADF, VORs, ILSs, you know, and all those different types of things as far as uh, yeah. the different types of navigation and GPS, of course, or right, was right. some so of that excluded? Case, right. So in this case, there was a general navigation subject you had to write um, uh, your, your tests in, and then there was the radio navigation part of the exam. So it was two subject, two different subjects, but like I said, so the IFR stuff was mainly covered in the uh, radio navigation subject. And yeah, to my surprise, of course, I was used to the American um, tests. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh, not too bad, you know. Of course, you have to know your stuff, but it's 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 doable um, since it's an open book test, kind of with the FAA system. Mm-hmm. But now here with this one, of course, we have a database here we can study, um, but it's not really the same questions that you get. They're close, but it's not really the, the questions that you will get. Mm-hmm. And you really have to, there's a lot of calculations. For example, one question is you fly from a thing or something like Paris to New York. At which point uh, in your flight, or actually they will give you a lat long on the globe somewhere in the North Pole, for example, and mm-hmm. they want you to know, I uh, want you to tell them what is now your heading at this point because it's great circle navigation so that everything is curved. Mm-hmm. And there's this nice long formula we can use to uh, calculate what heading you have at each and every point of your route. Wow. So you have to, there's a lot of math, a lot of math involved. I mean, yeah, I didn't, I'm, I'm not the greatest guy in math anyway, so I, I struggled. But yeah, I mean, you can manage it. So yeah. Man, they make it really difficult they for do. you. I mean, yeah, for, for it, helicopters, it your chances that you're going to be flying from France to New France York is to, not going to happen. Or I mean, <laughs> or I mean like, yeah. do, do you really need to know? Your, you know, I mean, what's the practical application for that? I think it's a little unnecessary. Exactly. You know, exactly. I mean, actually, in, in my case, actually, I got lucky that I turned it more towards or the the test towards helicopter pilots a year before me. You had to calculate a Boeing seven thirty seven breaking distance on a <laughs> wet runway or something. I yeah. totally. I mean, of course, it's nice to know, I guess, but it doesn't help me much in an yeah. R-22 or West Virginia, you know, knowing what a Boeing 737 braking uh, distance would be on such and such runway. That's how I felt with the FAA test, with their weight and balance, or, yeah, their weight yeah. and balance test, you know? It's like you're going in and you're doing your R-22, and then you realize you get a question on a 747. What's the weight and balance or what's the CG on a 747? I'm like, I don't care. I get it. But I mean, I'm I, like, just load it up. I mean, <laughs> we'll figure it out. 
I could see the argument for just <laughs> for just the general um, understanding of how weight and balance works in different applications and different aircraft. Right, like, absolutely. I, I could see with that, but like, you probably had to learn Loran C <laughs> navigation over oh, there absolutely. in Europe. Absolutely. You know, nobody freaking uses that anymore. What's the practical application for that? They need to they need to upgrade their stuff over there. It sounds like, but yeah, no, no offense yeah, to Europe. Love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Europe, you know, that I don't know. So you have the European Union. Of course, you got your individual countries and every country has their own little aviation rules underneath the whole YASA regulation Tory, and you have always some little changes. They're not all the same. And so if I do my check right here or if I do my conversion into Germany or let's say into France, there will be differences for sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's probably really uh, useful information to maybe a European who came over here to do their training and they're thinking about going back home. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. to absolutely. know what to expect. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's a lot of work, but it pays off. And I think, I think even then that his aviation or actually, you know, um, Bristol Academy, they do have, I believe, uh, EASA flight training department on its own i think i think yep. you do everything take all the tests i believe in florida already mm-hmm. i think no they do i have a couple friends yeah, okay. that are going through that process oh, okay yeah yeah let's talk about your offshore oil experience i know yeah. i saw on your resume that you had some experience during Deepwater horizon working the oil spill tell us about that what was that experience like yeah, so I just uh, came to the end of my fire, firefighting contract uh, in Minnesota, and then one guy um, somehow put my name forward to someone else, and the company needed pilots now uh, during the Deepwater Horizon incident. So long story short, I then hopped in the car, drove from Minnesota down to Louisiana, to Abbeville, and there's a local company who had uh, jet rangers and long rangers. And then we took the aircraft from there, flew to Lake from New Orleans, and uh, had our headquarter or our base at the signature aviation uh, check-in area, basically. Um, so we had biologists on board from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and we flew these technicians, or traditionally these biologists, basically. We flew them um, all the way from Lakefront to the shorelines of Louisiana. So basically we took off at 7 in the morning and flew to the all the way southwest corner of Louisiana, the coast, and flew low level, about like 50 or 100 feet. And um, as you may remember, there were these like um, oil-absorbing um, booms mm. or fabric, whatever, laid along the Louisiana coastline. And our job was to fly along this, um, the coastline to take photos of these absorbing booms to see if there's any oil at oil at all and also to see if there are any birds covered in oil. And if you look at Louisiana at the map, and you can see where the Mississippi River comes down into the Gulf of Mexico, that's, this is kind of where the worst oil pollution, um, that's where the most oil was washed against the shore and polluted the birds. There were also lots of oil patches floating offshore around, but you had these, I think it was C-130 airplanes that spread chemicals on top out of, of these um, oil patches offshore. And that chemical broke up the oil consistency or the, the chemical constellation. So mm-hmm. it's, it sunk basically. So out of sight, out of mind, basically. But it was mm-hmm. still there. It was just not coming towards the shore anymore. So when we were flying along the coastline, um, we were flushing a birds and the one that didn't fly anymore. We took a closer look and it was usually the ones covered in oil. Mm-hmm. So then I would uh, land near where the bird was running around. And then my colleagues hopped out with the big fishnet. 
and then uh, try to catch uh, the pelicans in this case. But sometimes the pelican hop into the water and try to swim away. And then I move the helicopter um, towards the pelican and use the downwash to blow it back to my guys, back to the shoreline so we could catch the pelican. And then we put it in a kennel, like a dog kennel. And then we flew to a cleaning facility that was around a Booseville. That's where the massive PHI base is, one of them. Mm -hmm. So we kicked out the birds there. And then we just went back to our last location and continued on flying all day low level with the long range in my case. Um, we, we spent about six, seven hours every day for like three, four months every day all over uh, Louisiana, the coastline. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, poor birds. I know. I feel like yeah, seeing the pictures back really then. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, was, yeah. I was there too. I was in the Coast Guard during oh. that Deepwater ah. Horizon. So I was patrolling the outside of the oil spill in my 110-foot patrol cutter out of Miami. They might have so seen we, me then. I know. I was like, that's so funny. We probably crossed paths like, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> See you in a couple um, years. Yeah, we were, we were, um, isn't that funny how life works sometimes? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it'd be so interesting. You know, I, right. I, I wish that there was some sort of an app that shows like your path through your entire life yeah, yeah, and you yeah, see yeah. And you can like connect it to a friend or something and see where maybe you guys have ever crossed paths in the world in your entire life. Right. Yeah, it'd be really, really interesting for someone to come up with something yeah. like that. And <laughs> I'm sure with fun. like everyone having iPhones or phones now, something I'm like sure that right now ask. could get implemented. Could figure that out. I but I guess we could also ask the CIA. I guess they would know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I I got my uh, my vaccine chip, so. <laughs> You're trackable, perfect. Yep. I'm very trackable right now. Same <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's so interesting. I was out of uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi. I don't know if you oh, I don't know. if you spent uh, any I mean, time in Mississippi. Mississippi. I to, to, no, I don't know on the map. I've been to Mobile and Gulfport, I think, but I don't remember that. Yeah, that, it's not that, that far from. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we um we we were out of there, but we were you know patrolling around the oil spill yeah. for about three months that we were down there so yeah yeah quite nice good job yeah awesome crazy high fives <laughs> really good barbecue down there <laughs> so cool has there been a moment flying ifr out in uh europe that you kind of got turned around or had any spatial disorientation at all no, no not at all no i mean um so when i was flying offshore uh, out of aberdeen in uh, scotland mm -hmm. so if you look at england or uk top right corner that's where the main base is um, there's basically every flight is on an IFR flight plan. Mm -hmm. All of them are. And uh, the 225 that I flew, um, it has, is called limited icing clearance. And then there's also unlimited icing clearance. So limited, you can be, uh, in that aircraft type, you can collect up to 45 uh, millimeters of ice. And then you have to either climb or descend. Mm -hmm. And luckily, the, the North Sea never freezes over, so you can always descend into mm. warmer air masses, and then all the ice sheds off the aircraft, and then you could climb up again, for example. Then the S-92, it comes with um, a fully icing protection system delivered right off the door at Zikowski. So it has heated blade, heated tail rotor, everything is heated, mm -hmm. so you can stay with that one in icing. But our policy was when you counter icing, evade, it, evade ice. Mm -hmm. But, but icing-wise, I mean, I picked up some ice when I was flying EMS, we just had a Actually, it was a funny story, maybe. So I was requested like one in the morning, and there was a patient, a little child, who might have might have ingested a chick McNugget in his lung, but nobody really knew. But this was the, the the situation we had. So we flew this child to a special 
hospital like for child care mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and um so we dropped them off and turns out no chip and nugget in his lung all fine it's easy to inhale back, those <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah so on, on the flight back um i went back ifr and of course i checked the icing levels and everything and there was wasn't supposed to be any icing at all and uh up on Entering the final approach fix of my approach to my base, I picked up all of a sudden ice, so it was like the windshield. I was on like goggles also, like MBGs, and I was surprised about ice building up. And But I was already on a descent, and uh, I didn't feel anything as far as like, increase in torque vibrations, but I saw there was ice uh, on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was dark, so I had to, once the machine was in the hangar, then I could have a better look at the aircraft. But the blades had ice on, of course, the nose, Basically, everything externally had some ice on, like the horizontal stabilizer. So, of course, that wasn't a great moment. Um, I mean, on pilot side, I mean, I did my pre-flight and everything as far as flight planning and looked at all the temperatures and icing levels. But obviously, weather can change. I experienced icing on a on a jet that I was in, and it happens quite rapidly, actually. It, it, yeah, it, okay. It's surprising now how fast the ice can accumulate. Like on your windshield, on the nose. It was really fast. You know, it happens, and I can only, it never happened to me in a helicopter, but I can imagine it's the same, you know, like it could happen quite rapidly. And if you have ice on your windshield, you definitely have ice on your blades because of aerodynamic cooling. Yeah, oh, look at yeah, you pulling yeah, up yeah. and <laughs> deep down in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> uh, what kind of ice was it? Was it clear ice? Rime ice mix yeah. and a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little mix of both in this case. On, on that flight, I was, I mean, it's the only time I had ice. Um, I had another colleague from the same base who was flying our backup ship. That was a BK 117 B2, and I was flying this C2. So the, the EC 145 is a C2. It's, it's just a whole Eurocopter, you know, brand name. I call it the H145, but it's actually BK 117 D2. Anyway, my colleague flew the backup ship, the BK 117 B2. And it's a VFR ship. And all of a sudden, he was surprised how come he couldn't see much outside anymore with his goggles down. Then he flipped them up, and everything was completely in ice. Completely oh, couldn't see anything outside at all. So he ended up uh, left and right. Everything was good, but just the front was totally iced. So he ended up flying like, sideways to the hospital when he arrived to see because he couldn't see anything up. Uh, mm-hmm. So he got lucky, and there was wow. yeah, out, of, out of nowhere. Yeah. Out of nowhere. And so is it impossible to see ice when you're under NVG goggles, night vision goggles? Um, or so do I you guess get halos case, on the lights? Or yeah, what? I mean, I have. My, I mean, in my case, I mean, when I had my ice experience. So when you have goggles on, of course, you you also look underneath uh, the goggles, mm-hmm. uh, look at instruments and such. Because when you when you when you focus them, it's the outsider's focus. If you look inside with the goggles, you cannot read the gauges or all like blurry. Uh, so in my case, I think I spotted it uh, with my off well, offside vision. Let us you know yeah, let us peripheral. Notice it. Yeah, peripheral. Um, but actually, uh, so Minnesota, where did EMS? We had actually a helicopter crash due to icing. It was uh, 2000 and I think it was 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. There was a Mercy Air helicopter, Bell 47, that were dispatched for a flight. And uh, where I worked, the Mayo Clinic, we were an IFR program. And But if you think about it, IFR is nice to have when it comes to icing. You have no alternative. It does a basic VFR aircraft. So we turned flights down, other programs turned the flight down, but that program, that Mercy Air, they accepted the flight. And they ended up flying through freezing rain, and it was a matter of, I don't want to say a sec, but it was very rapidly, the machine iced up completely, and then they had a retreating blade stall. 
And there's nothing you can do because the aerodynamic um, you know, forces didn't work the way they should. On, a, on mm -hmm. the blade has a totally different airfoil now. That's why you had very their taste. Um, if you imagine this is the wing, you have if the ice builds up here, it becomes like a wall sometimes. Uh, it yeah. doesn't go around. It kind of like builds up this way. So your stall mm -hmm. angles probably way lower than what it exactly, normally would be. Exactly. So it ended up so they ended up being low level and that's crashing over and us hitting, uh, you know, end up a big wall of flames basically. Wow. wow. So sad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's so, so important to do a proper pre-flight and make sure you're not flying into icing conditions. I mean, obviously, like in your case, it kind of came out of nowhere and, and that can yeah. happen, but being trained on what to do in the event that, because, you know, we learn about that stuff on in ground school, right? Freezing rain, what do you exactly. what do you do? How do you get out of the area? But um, yeah, practical application. I've never flown anywhere that was cold enough where I really had to worry about that. So I mean, at the Grand Canyon during the winter time, you know, there was I don't know some days where it was lightly snowing and the temperatures were kind of closer. And if you don't have experience flying in those colder weather areas, it's we uh, just have a lack of knowledge. Like a lack of knowledge. All I know exactly. is what I've read in books, but practical application. I mean, Jose's flown in alaska so he's got a little bit more experience oh wow yeah with stuff that's like really that. winter intense or temperature intense <laughs> that's <Yeah>. for sure <laughs> but but i mean i mean so the books they and they say when when i mean you know you have icing let's say you're cruising and when you have an increase in torque and a decrease in airspeed and of course vibrations that's what the book says what the mm -hmm. indications are and again I, I haven't had it this bad that I had such indications I just evade icing right away anyway when I have something like it. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, I mean, at, at least for the listeners who fly in warmer temperatures and don't have much experience flying in like colder temperature areas, when you have increase in torque vibration, speed decreases while trying to maintain your current settings, then you know you have icing for sure. But I think when, it, when you have such indications, you spend too much time in that uh, weather already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big True. time. With your operation that you do out in Germany, and I know you said that when you fly IFR, you have certain like limitations when you go fly due to icing conditions. Do they, I, I think you said on the 169, it doesn't have built in de-icing um, equipment like the S92 does, but does it have like, a temperature probe to let you know that yeah. you are icing? And my second question is, do you get de-iced at like a FBO or at your company for the um, time you do fly in ice? Right, so the 169, as per uh, its certification, is not allowed to fly known icing conditions at all. Oh, gotcha. Um, Leonardo actually is but is still working on it, get it certified. Mm -hmm. So that there is something in the, in the bush, <laughs> like planning-wise, but right now it's nothing is certified. Um, so, but if you encounter icing, I'm sure it's the same as the part 135 uh, manual would state. You have to then put glycol or some mm -hmm. alcoholic material, take your good old brush, you know, a broom and mm -hmm. a summer <laughs> scrape it off uh, the wings to get it. To get it out of, but in our case, um, yeah, it's it's VFR, IFR, but we have to stay to stay out of the icing conditions Got with it. the one six nine. Gotcha. Oh no, perfect. Yeah, I didn't know if there was standard of operations or, or stuff. preventative measures yeah, that, that you would yeah. use in Germany. You know, like as far uh, as, you know, like in the airlines, how they could spray down the wings and the whole fuselage. I didn't know if that the anti ice. I didn't know if right. that was something that they could do for your aircraft. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, the, the 139 is also a machine we operate in other companies too. And the 139, you can get, I believe, with heated uh, blades and such. Um, but obviously, it comes with a cost uh, as far as payload. And uh, 
and it's also payload of course is very it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, problematic on like hot summer days and of course the operator doesn't want to spend too much time to take this kit off and put it back on off on mm -hmm. and you have downtime with the aircraft so all the machines that i know of that fly in our area are all Uh, limited to non-icing conditions, gotcha. but but it doesn't mean. Of course, if they put it on, then I'm sure Jose, Jose, right? Yeah, yep, yep. yeah. Then I'm sure right. I'm sure they have they have um, procedures in place, such as like dipole or mm -hmm. put it put it in a warm hangar is always a good idea. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it just makes me think that like if there are standard procedures in place for preventative measures, the more risk people would accept. Does that does yeah. that make sense? I don't know. It, it, it just it just yeah. it just no, it, popped it, up it, in it my is. head. You know, when when people have a little bit of a warm and fuzzy, like yeah, well, I have an anti ice all over my aircraft, so maybe I'll fly in that little bit of a colder temperature than what I would maybe normally be mm -hmm. used to, or I don't know, like increase their level of acceptable risk of of what they're willing to that do. Makes sense. You know, I'm exactly. just yeah. curious, and and and, and there's also I think it's, you can also um, Compare that with a synthetic vision. Let's say the the Augusta 169 or the uh, H145. You have the synthetic vision screen in the cockpit. So let's say if you're flying bad weather in the 145 or 169 or anything that has synthetic vision, you would feel much better about flying in even IMC. You know, supposed to, but you see like houses, roads, rivers, valleys. So you can fly the machine without hitting anything, just looking at the screen. Of course, it's not allowed legally to wow, use it for. Yeah. But, 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 but like I said, if you have such tools in the aircraft, some guys may elect to take a flight they would normally not take under, uh, let's say if they would fly a simple aircraft, just steam gauges, no no fancy four-flight iPad or synthetic uh, mm -hmm. vision. So I think I'm right again. It's, it's, uh, that's always a chance that you're more inclined to take higher risk with more advanced technology in your aircraft, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, it still doesn't hurt to have that kind of stuff on board. You just have to, have, you yeah, know, with, with yeah. it yourself, pilots have to self-monitor and self-check and make sure that we're making good decisions out there and not pushing the limits Absolutely. and doing everything legally that we're supposed to. So do, do what you're supposed to do, go where you're supposed to go, and you're going to have a long fruitful. I do like how you guys, <laughs> yeah, I do like how you guys fly in a crew atmosphere, though. I do like, I do like the checks and balances of it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So when I was flying in the States, the EMS, of course, it's a senior pilot. I don't think there's any, is there any multi-crew operation in the States, EMS? Um, maybe maybe PHI, huh? maybe they do. For maybe, EMS? Yeah, not that I yeah, heard maybe of. Maybe PHI or Boston, Boston Med flight, maybe, I'm not sure. I think there was someone. Maybe, maybe Boston anyway. Med. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, multi-crew, I think, is, is really helpful, um, especially, also another story. So when I was uh, flying the 145 in the States, part 135, You know, we have this category A, uh, this push button in the uh, in the EC145. I'm like, what what is this button for? Ah, five of the wall. Let's, let's fly where you want. It's it's all fine. So when I came to Europe, no, 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 you gotta fly category A profile. See this vertical, you know, takeoff profile landing mm -hmm. with decision point, landing decision point, your TDP, LDP, and VTOS and VY and all this profile stuff. So this is where, where multi-crew comes in quite handy with something if an engine failure on takeoff, then as a crew, you kind of talk each other what's happening. And um, yeah, this makes it especially emergencies of any kind uh, with a fire drill, engine of fire, that's a big procedure you have to follow. And uh, doing this thing a pilot. Yeah, it's uh, it's so much better than what you group. Yeah, I think so. Checks and balances, man. Yeah. Go I, off I wish we I wish we did more multi crew out here. 
I think um, I know it's not as feasible at times, you know, due to the company. Yeah, but and it's you, more money. You know, yeah. not a lot of. I, I yeah, don't know more how money. an EMS in Europe is it a profitable business or is it like government run, paid by taxes or? Yeah, I'm just I'm just curious of the differences because in the U.S. when it's you know a competitive market between EMS companies, exactly. You know, and they're um, you know they go off of how much money they're going to make by only putting one pilot on versus having to pay two pilots to be there. But if it's you know paid for by the government in the uh, in Europe, it might be a little bit of a different. Situation. Yeah, so in Germany, we have two major EMS players. One of them is called ADAC. It's uh, all these yellow helicopters you see on YouTube doing a crazy, you know, narrow landing or like tight intersections or someone's backyard or front yard or something. And then you have the DRF. Um, so the ADAC is like a, uh, what's it called? The AAA in the States is car insurance. It's mm-hmm. going to AAA. Mm-hmm. So ADAC is like, like, a, like a car club. So you pay money in. So they have lots of fundings that they use from like normal automobile drivers um, to finance the EMS basis. But how it works here, um, the local authorities, at some point they decide, okay, we have that many people living here, we need an EMS helicopter. And it should be a base here. Who wants to put a tender or like a bid in for this base? And of course, then ADEC and DRF, they just put the bid in. But as far as money goes, Whoever takes his patients, it's a fixed governmental patient rate. So no matter who's flying, at least to my knowledge that I hear from my friends flying EMS, it's a fixed value that's being paid. Oh, and every base that they get, is, it's not forever. I think it's like five, something five plus years or something. And then it gets, um, there's another tender where you can, best case, maintain the space or you have to you know, vacate it or go somewhere else or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so as far as EMS in Germany, uh, they... Just start to do IFR in it, but it's nothing like what I experienced in the States. America is usually ahead of the game when it comes to aviation in Europe or Germany. So we had lots of hospital-based uh, GPS um, approaches mm-hmm. when I was flying in EMS in Minnesota. Here, there's, it's, you cannot imagine. It's such a bureaucracy. is horrible in Germany. It takes ages, and you have some guys that are really stubborn in certain agencies we have and ah oh, come on back in the days we didn't need gps approaches us fly and it's the clouds you know all vmc um so now slowly start to introduce um, gps approaches daytime it's all single pilot it's a pilot um it's a paramedic or nurse but then it's an emergency doctor at night you have another pilot so at nighttime it's always multi crew as far as two pilots up front but daytime is usually a pilot and then paramedic and a nurse uh, paramedic and a doctor or a nurse and a doctor Nice. Yeah, that is awesome. We we don't really yeah. do dual, dual pilot, but when we, you know, going back to transitioning into a more complex aircraft, the way our company does it here is when you transition into the 109, even after you've passed your check ride, they still have you fly with another qualified pilot for X amount, X of, time. amount of time. They don't really okay, have anything yeah. specified. It's more so just to make sure that you're still you know, comfortable and getting familiar with the right. mission, getting com- familiar, more familiar with the aircraft and seeing the procedures being done over and over and over again. So it's kind of a nice, it is nice. It's a nice thing that they do to help transition into a multi-engine aircraft. If you've never flown yeah, one before, exactly. And exactly. It, yeah, yeah, it helps out a lot. Right. Yeah. In my case, I had also, like I said, when I started EMS, 
I had a month of day shifts only, obviously, because you don't want to start at night. It's mm-hmm. just like Greenhorn, like I was when I started EMS. But yeah, you had, had, like the, you had the normal day shift pilot who was flying with you, all the flights, like you said, for like a, four weeks or so, and then they, they let you go. And it's the same in Germany also when you start here. Um, they also have like a, and whatever, a specialized instructor pilot, like a line trainer here, but it, it's the same, basically. I'm peanut butter jealous, though. I will say that. I, I want to I, I fly in Europe. I, I want to fly in Europe and live in Europe so bad. He, yeah, uh, Jose speaks a little Italiano. He wants to oh, go. Oh, really? That's yeah. cool. I was like, I just want to move to Italy, northern Italy. And, That's really nice. Yeah, you yeah. should. At some point, yeah. come over here. Find my senorita. <laughs> I've been thinking, no, no, I was your senorita. No. Um, we, and I, I thought about it, too, because um, so just a... Long story short, I'm I come from a family of Sephardic Jews from the Iberian yeah. Peninsula, and we have a deal with Portugal where uh-huh. if we get confirmation from a rabbi and basically you just hire a lawyer to help do the paperwork, uh, I could get my uh, European passport. I could get a passport for Por- oh yeah I could, I could get a passport for Portugal. We should get married. Oh, you should. You yeah, should. <laughs> you know. So I thought, I, you know, it's it's one of those things. It, it costs like not e- not even that much. I think my my friend did it, and I think hers was like three grand. But you know, she yeah. would have the opportunity to be able to work in Europe, and I was just kind of yeah, curious exactly. if I did that and I, how much the transition would actually cost me to get my licenses uh, all over to ESA. Yeah. And yeah, I know. Yeah, that's why I was also really curious about that because I'm like, hmm. Yeah, exactly. like, I've never actually I mean, talked to anyone who's done it before. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, yeah, I mean, it's totally possible. It does take some time. And if you, uh, with your flying job, if you have some time off during the day, yeah, that's useful for studying, you know, all this material that I mentioned earlier. But see, if, if you have it, for example, this company that, you know, Ericsson, you know, they do firefighting in America, in Australia, in Greece, and well, some Portugal also even. Mm-hmm. So if you would have, you have, you have you know, your citizen, your European citizen, so you can fly anywhere for Ericsson. Yeah, true. true. So we for you. I'll get you your Mexican citizenship and you can get me my European. So even, <laughs> see, see? So even, even with... Triple pass. <laughs> even with someone like Ericsson that has contracts all over the world like that, even yeah. with contracts, they require you to have the European license. They don't have any sort of exceptions if you're only going to be there for like a couple of months with a company. Or... Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, th- I think in their case, I believe they have a, like a special deal. I'm sure they do because you fly in American. You're flying in N number. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't have to, but I thought maybe. It's another bonus here to get. Yeah, I'm sure it would be. I can say as long as I want to, I got European citizen, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I guess it it, it, it goes off your tail number, right? So if you're, because I looked into flying conservation in Africa and a lot of the, um, the, a lot of the aircraft over there are not in numbers. And so, yeah, yeah, it depended, you know, you'd have to get a South African license or um, some of them require the European licenses. Right. But if you can get a rare opportunity where you find an aircraft over there that they're flying that has an end number, then I think they said exactly. that you can have an FAA yeah, license. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I love having helicopter pilots on here. That's the majority of our, <laughs> well, the majority of our listener base is helicopter pilots. And when we look at the numbers and downloads and streams, all of our helicopter episodes are like 
twice as much than the, <laughs> than the airplane guys, even though like we love our we love all of our guests and our fixed wing guys are still awesome. But definitely oh, our, our listener base, I think, really enjoy hearing about helicopters and helicopter experiences because there's not a lot of podcasts out there that focus on helicopters. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. Between you and I don't know if you listened to our episode uh, with Tom Ostrom from a uh, oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah from Norway, guy, yeah. and he also had the same thing where he tried to go the military route and it didn't work out, and he got a little discouraged and kind of got out of it for a couple of years, and then revisited aviation after he had a, a couple different jobs in the military doing other things, but it kind of just shows that. You know, don't get discouraged if like your first plan doesn't work out because there's so many other opportunities out there and life is kind of just pointing you in a different direction. Like, hey, man, like this is just a different path that you're supposed to go. And uh, so, yeah, people out there who maybe first attempt something and even not in aviation, but like, you know, the first attempt or first dream that you're going after, if it doesn't work out, there's a reason for it. And there's another path for you. And it's always going to be other opportunities and window closes and other door opens or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> you know like... Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, in, in my case, I mean, I, I wasn't the, the smartest kid in school. And back in the days, I couldn't even give you, a, I couldn't even say a simple English sentence. I just could give you all the vocabularies. I couldn't even say a normal sentence in English. So but what I'm saying is, but if I could achieve what I did, then everybody else can. Of course, I had to work hard for it. Nothing came really for nothing for me. But I think, I just hope what I said today just shows everybody, you know, if a foreigner can do it from Germany with hardly any <laughs> skills in, in America, then um, if you work hard, if you work hard and be nice to everybody, something will eventually work out for you. I hear you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, amigo. Thank you. You're selling oh, yourself short, right? though. You know, if you could calculate the distance from Paris to New York, <laughs> I think you're doing all right. Or what your heading is on yeah. 32000.1North. Right now, I would fail the test, guaranteed. <laughs> and that's the thing with these written tests. And they make them so complicated and you study it your is. butt off for them. But there's no real practical application for some of the stuff you learn in there other than just, I don't know, being like, yeah, you could learn that for a short period of time. But because you don't use it, you lose it. You know, I'm not going to go out there and navigate with Loran, but, you know, you have to learn it. You have to learn it for a stupid written test. And then as soon as you're done with the test, your brain is like, well, don't need that anymore. <laughs> and it just dumps it, you know? Yep, yep. Short term memory. Yeah, it's just, uh, you learn it for the written and then you just get rid of it and make room for all the stuff that you actually do need to know and store in there for uh, the actual practical application of, of flying and what the mission that you're doing. But. Yeah, that's a question. Uh, how about you guys? You guys have any dreams? Anything you guys want to pursue in your uh, aviation career? Anything? Yeah, definitely. I want to live in Europe. Yeah, he wants, <laughs> yeah. He wants to go to Italy. Uh, yeah, that's his, Italy. that's his whole thing. I got to figure it out. I'll figure it out. I want to go to the moon. I want to go to moon. the moon, Falco. S- SpaceX. SpaceX yeah. moon uh, mission. Diane, number one. I had a, um, you know, I, I had a potential opportunity to fly a jet. PIC right off the bat and it just fell That's through last week and uh, no. yeah unfortunately the company abruptly dissolved over oh. some 
you know, drama between owners. But yeah, it's a really unfortunate because I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be able to build my thousand hours at PIC Jet Time. I'll go to test pilot school and bing, bang, boom, NASA, here I come. But yeah, that um, didn't quite work out for me. But who knows? I mean, there's, again, when it doesn't work out, there's a reason for it. And yeah, something better might come along. When I was growing up, I... Just, I wanted to be an astronaut so bad. My entire room was just filled with space stuff, and I had That's this, cool. I had this mur- mural on the wall of me standing on the moon, looking down at the Earth, and I just had a vision recently of like, yeah. how crazy would that be if that actually, you know, came into fruition? And I was standing on the moon, looking down the Earth, like, huh. That's funny. <laughs> Manifested that from childhood. Crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We'll I we'll see. Some other dreams, I guess, other than flying dreams, is um, also just creating programs that are inspiring kids and getting youth involved in aviation. And right now we're in the midst of planning this really big aviation day for middle and high school kids. I mean, people can bring their kids of all ages, but we're kind of catering more towards middle high school students. We're going to have a career seminar, helicopter flights, airplane flights, vendors. It's going to be like this whole 500-person yeah. event. Air show. Mini air show. A mini, yeah, basically a mini air show. It's um, a lot of planning, a lot of work, but it, I think in the end it's going to be worth it, and I'm really passionate about sharing my oh, passion um, for yeah. aviation and getting more people involved. So I guess... You know, creating something out of an idea, I guess, yeah, is getting to use my creative powers and <laughs> <laughs> gotta start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that I guess that's another a dream. I want to start a nonprofit, a foundation, and start offering wow. flight scholarships. And you know, I'm in the in the midst of, I guess, building begi- something. Yeah, building something, We're beginning building something beginning that that stage. So it's pretty much it, man. It was yeah, sure. such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you again for coming thank on. Thank you in. so much, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, amigo. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you, bye. All right, guys. School is in session. Let's talk about icing. Icing. It's going to make you want a snow cone after this. <laughs> what is aircraft icing? It's when ice is accumulating on the aircraft structure or the induction system, which is where, you know, the engine gets its air from, we kind of need that. So what are the different types of icing? We've got clear ice. And for airplanes, this can turn into what they call swept back icing. This is the worst. It's heavy, it's clear, it's dangerous. Mostly accumulates in temperatures approximately negative 10 to 2 degrees Celsius, where large water droplets don't freeze immediately. But as they move over the airfoil surface, it freezes in a sheet of ice. So for airplanes, this is increasing the weight, never good for performance, and it's also changing the aerodynamic property of the airfoil itself. Also, not great for performance. And if we're talking about helicopters, other than all of those things that we just mentioned, that sheet clear ice can break off your blades and go into your tail rotor. And I wouldn't want to be that pilot that day. No, thank you. Rime ice is a lighter, opaque, brittle, and forms in temps approximately negative 20 to negative 15 degrees Celsius. So a little cooler where the small to medium-sized water droplets freeze on impact, which sometimes can form a horn on the leading edge of the air foil, changing its aerodynamic properties. Now this one is one that looks like a snow cone. Kind of makes me want to like throw some grape on there. (laughs) 
<laughs> Mixed eyes. Can I get an upgrade to a combo? <laughs> we got clear eyes. We got rhyme eyes. And together, we make a no good situation. It forms in temperatures between negative 15 and negative 10 degrees Celsius. So I get a little bit of both, but same. Uh, same, same, but same, different. Same, same, but different. Uh, same dangerous uh, properties can, can occur on this as well. So maybe one day you go outside, you're doing your pre-flight, and you see a little bit of frost on the blades. And you're just like, oh, that's just a little bit of frost. That's not going to hurt anybody. Wrong! And you guys might be wondering, what's the danger of a little bit of frost on my blades? Well, have you guys ever seen a Christmas story? I'm just saying, when he got his tongue stuck on the pole, same thing happens when there's visible moisture in the air and you got a little bit of frost on the helicopter. So all it does is make the ice stick easier. So why would you want that? Get it in a nice warm hangar and remove it from the aircraft. Induction icing. For the engine to run smoothly and produce the power it's supposed to, we need a clear path for the air to be sucked into, then be compressed and burned. If we have icing forming on our induction system, we're going to lose some power, if not all the power. Pitot-static icing can also form on both your pitot tube and your static ports. And if your pitot tube gets blocked, you could find yourself without an operating airspeed indicator. So this is definitely not something to take lightly. Uh, I know we joke around a lot, but icing is a very serious situation, and we have to do our best if you're in an aircraft that's not rated to go into icing conditions Don't do it. Don't do it. Just stay out. Do a proper pre-flight. Make sure that if you're in cold weather environments that you're doing a thorough pre-flight to make sure that you're not in uh, close to freezing temperatures with high high water, visible moisture. visible moisture. If you are flying and you catch yourself in an icing condition, the rule of thumb is to climb or descend 3,000 feet. Now, that's not always possible due to the circumstances of ceilings or the terrain below you. But if you do catch yourself in icing, get out of those icing conditions and climb or descend 3,000 feet. That's usually a good altitude to be able to get out of some of that visible moisture and change in temperature. Yeah, so temperature will change 2 degrees per 1,000 feet. So 3,000 feet is a good 6-degree difference, which could... You know, I mean, the difference between icing, and, icing and not icing. We say close to freezing temperatures because of aerodynamic cooling. So when we're producing lift, we're decreasing the pressure on the top of the airfoils, which also decreases our temperature on top of the airfoils dramatically. So if you're flying in a condition where you look at your outside air temperature and you see that it's, you know, five degrees and below and you're in visible moisture, those are prime conditions for uh, aircraft icing, especially if you're airfoils. And the ways that you can recognize that you're getting into icing, if you see ice starting to build up on your windscreen or on the skids or on any part of the aircraft structure, you can, you can best believe that you have icing on your blades as well. And you're going to notice that you're going to uh, have an increased power demand, higher torque than what you had been flying with. And in that instance... You want to get out of the area as soon as possible, away from the visible moisture, and uh, either climb or descend, like Jose mentioned. So, so just like uh, warming up the air, getting the air even cooler is also going to help. That's why he mentioned climbing 3,000 feet. So if you decrease the temperature, you're getting into a situation where 
the moisture is already frozen enough where it's just going to bounce off the surface and it's not going to stick. So that's what we're trying to avoid here, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We really appreciate everyone's support. Thank you guys for listening in. We hope this uh, episode was educational at the end here. And we love you guys. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcast. Again, it really helps us out. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Adios. Bye.